your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin today at verse 13 as we continue in our series out of the Gospel of Matthew. Today the title of this message is The Constitution of the Kingdom. Just like in America that we have the United States Constitution, uh, God has given his subjects, his royal subjects, a constitution as well. That started as we read the Beatitudes, and now it really picks up steam between verse 13 all the way through chapter 17, or chapter 7 of Matthew. Last week from the Beatitudes, we learned the spiritual attitudes of believers. A believer, by the way, is someone who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and is born again. You have received the grace and mercy from God, and now your sins are forgiven. All of them. All sin is forgiven for a believer. Peter has, has this to say about believers. I love it. Take your, take your time and turn, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll pick it up at verse 9 when you're ready. Go ahead and turn. I'll give you a second. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. While we're turning, let me just say to our live stream audience that we're glad that you're here this morning joining us. Many of you are watching from other parts of our nation and possibly even outside of this nation. And yet we also have those who are local family members who maybe are home because of COVID or because, not because they have COVID, but they are being careful uh, so they don't get COVID. They don't come out. They're staying home right now. We understand that. But for us, we're here and we're in the Word and you are as well watching from home. Peter had this to say about believers in uh, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, or I urge you as aliens and strangers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, or keep, keep your conduct among the lost, the pagan. Keep it honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So for the believer, the character and conduct really matters. It matters to us in the eyes of God because when we carry out the character and conduct of Christ, it brings glory to the Father. But it also matters because it has a spiritual impact on the lost world. Now we come to a different focus in this powerful sermon. If the, if the Beatitudes bring clarity to the spiritual attitudes of the believer, the, then verse 13 is a vivid portrayal for how our character should manifest in this world. Look at verse 13 again. Let's read it. It says, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. When you read this passage, it's apparently clear that the church of Jesus Christ is not to be detached from the world. I cannot tell you how important this sermon is today. How important it is that we as a local fellowship hear very clearly the words of Christ in this Sermon on the Mount. I want you to know we're not free as people who have been saved by Christ to live a monastic life. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does it ever call for God's people to live a monastic life. We are not isolationists. We are called to be separate from the world in our spiritual attitudes and conduct, yes, but we are very much at work in this fallen world by being witnesses for Jesus Christ. Being a Christian isn't a hall pass for isolation from this messed up, sin-sick world. Instead, we've been commissioned here in this passage by Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, to have a preserving influence on every foul and offensive soul that is headed for hell. There's no such thing as a Christian subculture in the New Testament church. There's no place, listen, there is no place in the New Testament church, in the book of Acts, for a Bible Belt culture. That is something that we as Americans have created in pockets of our nation where everybody knows the right words and the right songs and has their own little testimony because they were all raised in the church. They can tell you what pew chair their parents paid for and that they all sit on and all that nonsense. That is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, that very idea runs, it runs opposite of what the Bible teaches. While yes, we are called to be a fellowship to be in love with one another and to spend time together growing in the word of God, reaching out together into this world and then going out every day individually. That is what we're all about, is being salt in this world. It's not about a subculture experience where you never have to talk to lost people. It's not about being so comfortable in your environment that you don't fear a lost person walking in. Have you ever had an experience in the world where it felt foreign, it felt odd, it felt wrong? How did you respond to that? I'm afraid some of us, our response would be, oh, get me out of here. Scared of the world. You have God in you. Greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world. And because God is in you, that place of darkness, that moment of darkness that you experienced needed the illumination of the light of Christ. But because some of us are so inculcated with this Bible Belt concept of just feeling so good when I'm with God's people. We can't handle 
the very reason that God has saved us while we're on this earth. I'm, I'm telling you, the type of Christian living where we just hang out together all the time and never connect with lost people, that isn't an, an anathema to Christ. It's a curse. The world needs more than that from us. I'm not saying they want it. I'm saying they need it. And Jesus is the one who's blowing the horn here. He's giving the clarion call. Again, look closely at the progression described in the Beatitudes. If we go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 1, you're blessed if you see yourself as poor in spirit, meaning that apart from the work of Jesus Christ in my heart, I am lost for all eternity. And then you mourn over your sins to the point that you repent and the and that good, fr good fruit follows repentance. And you're meek because you know that, that it's not in your strength that you're able to go forward. It's not in your strength that you live the Christian life. It's in the strength of God because you're, you're controlled by God. And you're hungry and thirsty for God because you've emptied yourself of worldly things. We talked about last week how so many of us don't hunger for the word. We don't hunger for, for worship. Today I'm telling you, man, I was, look, we're sitting in a, in a cafeteria. We, uh, Deb calls it the chapelteria. <laughs> and and the, you got fluorescent lights. There's no, there's no light show. There's no smoke on the stage. There's no props. It's just us naked it, not naked physically, naked in the spiritual sense before God. We just come with hungry hearts for God to fill us. And we don't have to have the big, big band, the big choir, the big this, big that. We just come with a heart that's so hungry for Jesus himself. You can be filled in a place like this. I'm filled up, man. I'm telling you, I'm going to preach for three hours. I, I, I hope all of you stay. I, you're merciful because you realize just how much God has forgiven you. And those who've been forgiven much, forgive much. See, that wasn't really about you. The salvation experience was about you that, you, that God has shown you forgiveness for your sins. But then from that point forward, there's still forgiveness to be given, and it's you to the world. And then he goes further, you know, just continues on that you're now pure in heart. You're a peacemaker. Why? Because Christ has control. No longer is it my life to decide what I'll do and where I'll go and who I'll spend my time with. No, honestly, it's not. It's Christ in you who is the hope of glory. He has control. He's not just your Savior. He is your Lord. He is master. You are servant. The servant doesn't dictate to the master. The servant doesn't command the master. The servant humbly falls before the master and does whatever the master says. And the master is telling you and I today, you are the salt of the earth. This entire progression of transformation that we see happening in the life of a believer through the Beatitudes, listen, it all points to one thing. 
that you are to become the salt of the earth. This is a litmus test for true salvation. A true Christian will be salt. Jesus said if you're not salt, if your saltiness has no effect, we're just going to throw you out in the street and let people trample on you. You're good for nothing. True Christianity transforms us into productive people for the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul clearly spells out, for we are his, speaking of God the creator, and speaking of Christ the creator, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were not created, you were not saved from the foundation of the world, your name written in the book of life, that you would just simply live for yourself, live amongst a bunch of little Christian friends, and have little powwows and sing kumbaya. You were created so that you could bring glory to the name of the Father and live on this earth and live among lost people and rub shoulders with lost people and love lost people and bring salt where it's desperately needed. And coupled with all of that is persecution. It goes with the whole thing of being a Christian. It's not for some, it's not if, it's when. Persecution is part of the Christian life experience. I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've known the Lord. You only know him as well as you are persecuted by the lost. And I'll tell you why. Because if you are being persecuted by the lost, you are living for Christ. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 through 13, Paul charges Timothy with this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Does that sound optional? You will be persecuted. In fact, he goes further. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, more the reason for you to be salt of the earth and more the reason for you to be persecuted by the world. This is what we learn from the Beatitudes. This is what we learn about verse 13, which talks about our relationship with the world. That's what Jesus is after here in this verse. He's trying to help you as a believer to understand who you are in Christ, what your character and conduct looks like in him, how to get there through the Beatitudes, and now that you are a believer, how to relate to a lost and dying world. You and I are called to be, here it is. This is what Jesus is talking about. We're called to be a preserving influence in a decaying, putrefying world. Write that down. We are called we are called to be a preserving influence in a decaying world. Without a doubt, this is the most urgent matter pressing the church in our day. And I know I'm going to step on some toes this morning. I don't really care. I'm not here to please a single person. I'm not preaching today from my thoughts. I'm not preaching to you 
things that I think you'll like to hear. I'm just going to spell out what the Bible says. And if it steps on your toes, you need to move your feet, brother and sister. It's urgent because of the condition. This is the most urgent pressing matter that the church has before it in our day it's urgent because of the condition that this world is in we are seeing things go from bad to worse right in front of our own eyes right now in this nation sin is more prevalent and widely accepted in this culture today than at any other time in our nation's history it's never been any worse in this nation than it is right now the question that must be answered from verse 13 is this. What is each individual Christian's relationship with the world supposed to be? We could say it another way, but don't let this one trample out the first that I just gave you. What is the church's relationship with the world supposed to be? So we're asking two questions. What is an individual Christian's relationship with the world supposed to be what is the church's relationship with the world supposed to be and in case you're wondering what the answer is jesus clearly spells it out in a seven word sentence you are the salt of the earth in that simple statement our savior revealed two things first he reveals our description in the world secondly by our description jesus implies the condition that the world is in. I want to go backwards and start with the condition that the world is in. Let's approach it backwards. Here we go. If we're called the salt of the earth, that implies something about our world. Church, it's going to be important that we hear this today with a crystal clear understanding of the state of this world and our heavenly purpose in it. We cannot afford to join the ranks of so many Christians and churches in North America that have either misunderstood or grossly and completely ignored this teaching from Jesus Christ. As a local fellowship, we cannot allow ourselves to participate in this tragic oversight of our century. So what exactly is Jesus implying about the world that he says, you are the salt of the earth? He's implying that the world from the beginning has been in a constant state of rot and decay. We know this because that was the major use for salt in the day that Jesus walked the earth. It was used as a preservative for meat, for red meat, white meat, for fish. Salt preserved the meat. Jesus borrows the analogy to say that as Christians, we're living in a world that has so much stench of sin and death upon it that we need to be salt and preserve and influence what is rotting and decaying in this world. Young people, I don't care how beautiful the world makes itself to be, how good it smells when you're out among those, let me tell you something. Believe me, deep down in the heart of this world is nothing but a rotten stench. And the Bible says it this way, that the heart of man is deceitful above all things. Who can possibly know it? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, wrote 60 years ago in his day, 
quote, the world is bad, sinful, and evil. He went further. He said, any, and any optimism with regard to the world is not only thoroughly unscriptural, but has actually been falsified by history itself. All we have to do is look in Genesis where we find God creating a perfect world and a perfect man and a perfect woman. Yet because of the influence of sin, like a little yeast in a, in a ball of dough, the whole world is immediately contaminated by sin. By the sixth, by the sixth chapter of Genesis, we find God declaring, my spirit will not contend with man forever. The rot in the heart of man was so bad after just six chapters that God had to send the great flood to wipe out all but one family on the, of the entire human race. But even after starting over, man only continued in a spiritual downgrade until we come to Genesis chapter 18 and see man engaging in sexual perversion sin so bad that God wipes twin cities off the face of the earth. In that day, God destroyed whole cities for such perversion sin. Where in our day, you're persecuted if you hold to God's standard for marriage. Or if you hold to God's idea of creation that he made us male and female. The world continues down this path of destruction. And it's worse today than it's ever been in our nation. Make no mistake about it, our Lord sees the world in a constant state of putrefaction. That's what he sees in this world. And yet, you don't see our Lord saying, because the world is so stinking nasty and miserable, you need to stay away from it. Just get away from it. Don't be around it at all. He doesn't say that. He says, no, I have raised you up I have put in you a poor in spirit understanding and a mourning over your sins and a meekness where I'm in control, you're not in control, so that I can take you out into this world and I can, you can help bring influence where there is evil, where there is wickedness. This flies in the face of what many Christians think and how they live. They see evil and they want to run from it. I want nothing to do with it. You are contrary to the word of God when you do that. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't situations where you need to run. Joseph in the Old Testament was approached by Potiphar's wife in the bedroom, possibly. We don't know exactly what room it was in, but she came and she went after him. She wanted him for herself. And he didn't say, well, honey, come over and have a seat on the couch. I need to talk to you about this. The Bible says he fled. He got out of there right away. The Bible says that we should flee the presence of evil. And when it said that, guess what it was talking about? Specifically, sexual sin. Sexual sin. When I was a young pastor, just, just having been called into the, feeling the call of God, I went and met with my pastor who was living in the, in the college town that I was attending that school. And uh, and, and he sat me down he said, Greg, the greatest temptation that you'll experience in your life as a, as a pastor will be sexual temptation. And I can look back and I can say, boy, was he right. In those situations, I don't need to try and, and hang out with that type of sin. 
I need to flee it. But when it comes to general people that are lost and living in lostness and conducting themselves in ways that are not part of the character of God, we are not to run from them. We are to come near them and bring an influence into the room when, they're, when we're there. Now let's turn our focus to what Jesus was teaching about our purpose in this rotting world. Again, we are described as the salt of the earth. What does that mean? Let me give you several things that I think it means. Number one, it means that we are to be unlike the world. The essential quality of salt is that it brings a difference to whatever medium you place it in. In fact, that's how you know that salt is working. Why? Because it changes the medium. It demands a difference. Even in a large pot of whatever it might be, a small amount of salt can make all the difference. Amen, ladies and men who cook? Our king says that this is the way of the Christian life. We are as different from this world as salt is to a New York strip. It's the picture of a room where some people are being careless in their speech, and then you walk in as the salt of the earth. You don't say anything. You don't try to boast. You don't stick your chest out because you know God. You just walk in the room, and immediately the coarseness of talk dies out. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. That if you and I as believers were not present in this fallen world, this world would be far worse off than it already is. Christ has commanded that we play that role in this world. And it's not you and your strength, and it's not you and your personality, it's not you and your words that makes the influential difference. It's you simply being a bottom-level rower for Christ, pulling your oar well as Christ steers you from day to day. It means that we are to glory in the difference that we bring. So first, it means that we are to be unlike the world. Secondly, it means that we are to glory in the difference that we bring. A Christian is a separate, unique individual that stands out even when he's not trying to bring attention to himself. In other words, it's not his abilities that make him stand out. It's Christ in him that causes him to stand out. The very best illustration that I can give of this, I have to go all the way back to my college days. A young lady that was in school with me, her name was Melanie Green from Farmersville, Ohio. Does that sound like the Midwest or what? Melanie Green was a, was a nice-looking young lady. Melanie Green had such a real and dynamic relationship with Christ. She was not loud. It was not her personality that just came in the room and just lit the room up. It was her holiness. It was her desire for God. This was a lady that if you spent any time around her, you saw someone as a college student who hungered and thirsted for righteousness who did not want to trade her hunger and thirst for Christ for a hunger and thirst for worldly things. And I watched Melly. We were friends. We took some classes together. I had such respect for her. And I would watch Melanie as she would walk into a room before class, and there's some guys over there in the corner who are talking and joking and probably some coarse stuff going on. 
and she would walk in and the room falls silent. It wasn't because she was so good looking. It was because she was an influencer. She was true salt. She influenced those around her by her character and her conduct. That is what you and I are to be every day that we live. You cannot come to church on Sunday and put on your Christian face and sing the Christian song and stand there and talk like you know Christ and then on Monday in your business practices practice unrighteousness like a, like a, like a pagan. You have to be the same person everywhere you go in every crowd that you're with. And if you are, it will bring persecution to you. There will be those who will mock you and ridicule you and laugh at you, and they will do anything they can to knock you off course, to make fun of you. But you maintain who you are, not because you're working it up, creating this image, but because Christ is in you and he has full control of your life. It means that we are to glory in the difference that we bring. I hope you understand what I'm saying there. It also means that our main function in the world is more negative than positive. Well, now you know that this is not a prosperity gospel message. If you are the salt of the earth, believe me, it will bring more negative than positive in your life. Oh, it'll be positive in the spiritual sense and in your relationship with Christ. You're, you're building up a reward in heaven by the good works that you're doing, but not in regard to the world. Let me explain that. We're here in this world to slow down the putrefication process. The problem is the world loves sin and darkness. Therefore, it will not welcome a salty Christian with open arms. That's the reality of worldly existence. We are in this world, existing in a fallen world. They would much rather we be bland and insipid so that no one notices when we come into the room. Just blend in with the prevailing influence of evil. That's what the world dictates to us. Just be like us and you'll get along just fine. But that's not the purpose of salt. Salt makes a difference wherever it goes. Wherever it shows up, it preserves and heals. That's why some people gargle with salt water. You know why people gargle with salt water. I don't want to go into too much description there, but it loosens up the mucus. Salt has that effect on sin, on unhealthy things. That's who you are. You are called by Christ to be a healing agent in this world. That's the Christian life. Are you hearing what I'm saying? This is what Jesus is telling us. That is what it means to be a Christian. Just look at history and you'll notice the preserving, preserving influence of Christianity on any society. As long as Christianity had a dynamic influence with, within the community, that community was strong and powerful. That's what Christianity can do when it's true Christianity. You look at our own nation, the United States of America. We were formed on Christian principles. 
We had a very heavy influence of Christianity in the forming of our nation and in the writings of our founding documents. Even our Constitution was influenced strongly by the principles found in the Word of God. We have safeguards to protect our religious freedom. We have safeguards to protect our freedom of worship, freedom of speech, all because Christian influence was strong and we weren't afraid to say, one nation under God. But through the years, the Christian voice has been weakened in its influence on our society. We can easily see those rotting forces that are now eroding away the foundation of this once great nation. And the worst mistake the church could, could ever make would be to turn to the political arena to think that that's going to turn America around. Shame on us if we're playing that game. You are called to be salt in the world. You're not called to put all your hope in some other person to be salt in the world. You are called to be salt in the world. You have no right to be out there blasting your mouth about this candidate, that candidate, this political party, that political party, when you're not walking as salt and light yourself. The hope of this nation, the hope of any nation, the hope of our world is Jesus Christ, Period. Donald Trump cannot save America. Joe Biden cannot save America. Look at both parties, and you've got a majority probably of people in those parties, or look at any Congress, look at any Supreme Court, most of them aren't even saved. They're just moral people, and they're not even really good at that. And you're putting your hope in that? Please don't take this beyond what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote. Every American ought to vote. You're a citizen of this country. Take advantage of the opportunity. And you vote biblically. If you didn't come out last Thursday night to that teaching, you need to come this coming Thursday, the second half. And you probably go back. I'm sure we, we have that live stream recorded. You can go back and listen to the first one so you come in prepared for the second one. You're going to hear very well that we believe that we ought to be people who care about those things and that we ought to vote biblically. That's what we're going to teach you. But even with all of that said, whether we see the person we like or not, I don't really care. I'm telling you right now, it doesn't come down to that. It comes down to this church, every member of this church, going out of here and being salt and light every day of the week 24-7. And when you get churches across America that do that, listen, there's a reason why we're in the mess we're in. Because the church has forgotten her calling of God. She has ignored the call of Christ to be salt of the earth. The hope is not any government. It's not any man. Psalm 40, verse 4, listen to this one. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud or to those who go astray after a lie. Now you tell me where the proud and the lies are coming from these days. Why would you go after them? That's not the answer for this land. We need a spiritual refreshing. That's why in two weeks on Thursday night we're going to have a sacred assembly, a solemn assembly over at the plaza. We're not going to have preaching. We're not going to have music. We're going to come in, get on our knees before God and pray for not only this nation, but pray for our own hearts that we would repent of our sin, that we would take the call of Christ to be salt of the earth in this world, in light of the world, and get on with it. Let's get on Jesus' train. Get off every other train. Amen? Then Jesus said, 
verse 14, you are the light of the world. And you knew I was going to get here sooner or later. You are the light of the world. Try to get the picture. This is really fascinating to me when I thought about it. I just sat back in my chair after reading through this passage, putting it in context with the Beatitudes, and more importantly, with the entire Sermon on the Mount, knowing the setting, the context of this story when Jesus said it. And here's what I came with. Here are the disciples, Peter, James, and John, sitting with Jesus near the Sea of Galilee, which is far away from metropolitan Rome, far away from the Grecian culture and influence of Greece, which was the predominant culture of that day. And yet they're on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee to this motley crew of fishermen who weren't necessarily great fishermen because it's half the time when Jesus goes to reach them, they're, they're, they're mending their nets. They're not out fishing, they're just mending. And Jesus says to this crew, in light of the strength of the Roman Empire of that day, in light of the strong Grecian culture, Jesus says, hey, 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 guys, you, you bunch of fishermen, listen, you are the light of the world. He didn't say you're the light of, of Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee. You're, you're the light of this region. He said, you're the light to the Roman Empire. You're the light to the Grecian culture that we live in. How marvelous. I love that. Only if we could embrace the influence that the church should be having in this dark world today, that you are God's only light in this world. There is no other light. You're it. You say, but I'm, I'm just messed up. I, you know, I need to get my life in order. You'll never get your life in order. People say, well, when I get my life straightened out, I'm going I'm to get involved in the life of the church. Hey, let me just give you a hint. Just get saved. Christ is the only one who can change your life. He's the one who puts your life in order. Just surrender to Christ. And if you surrender to Christ, you will be the light of the world. You're God's hope for this crazy, messed up world. Think about that. That's what Jesus was saying to a bunch of old fishermen laying there by the, you guys are the light of the world. Paul, when he was describing his commission before King Agrippa, he talks about his conversion on the road to Damascus, and he declares that the Lord called him to deliver the Gentile world, the pagan world, from the domain of darkness and to bring them into the kingdom of light. That was Paul's mission. And we know what Jesus sent the messenger to say to Paul as he was about to have the scales removed from his eyes and his ministry to start. He said, let Paul know that he's going to suffer many things for my namesake. Where's the prosperity gospel in that? Where's the subculture, Bible-believing Christian culture that we all long for? You're going to go out in the world, Paul. You're going to live among lost people, and that will be your focus is to be the salt of the earth and to be the light to the world. Light only has one purpose. You know what it is? To illuminate. Therefore, one purpose that God has for you is that you might give light 
to a dark world. How, you say? Well, he answers that for you in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's very possible to let your light shine in such a way that when people see your good works, they glorify you. That's a real problem in God's church today. I imagine it's always been a problem in the church. We can do our works before men to draw attention to ourselves and to bring honor to self. But to do so reveals that there is something very perverse in our flesh that wants to steal what belongs to God. By the way, it's much easier to be a hero in public than it is in private. It's hard to do your works where nobody sees it except you. Where's the fun in that, huh? No one wants to do good works when nobody notices. We all want good works when everybody can see us. Rini and I and our kids lived in Palm Beach Gardens for 21 years. I pastored a church there for those 21 years. And I can remember we would, uh, on a fairly regular basis, we would take the uh, older adults in our church, I'll say older adults being politically correct there, um, not aging anybody. You, if that fits, you take it with you. But um, we would take them to lunch. Or we'd go on a tour to uh, Hoffman's Chocolate Factory. Oh, yes. We'd, we'd just take little excursions with them every, every so often and just spend time together. And so I would pull the church vans around and I would get out and help the ones with walkers and canes and put them in the bus and open the doors and just, just do whatever I can. I'd pray the prayer at the meal. And the whole time I'm doing this because in my heart I just want to bless and love them. I want to just let them know your life's not over. You still matter to God and you matter to us. But while I'm doing it, what I'm hearing coming out of many of their mouths is, oh, Pastor Greg, you are wonderful. Oh, wow, did you see what he did? You, you, just, you, know, you just light up my world when I'm with you. And Rini would attend those events with me from time to time when she would get off work and they would start in on something like that. And before I could say something to them about pointing them to Jesus, you know, well, honestly, if it was left up to me, I wouldn't be here with you. My flesh nature is to put Greg first, not you. So if I'm doing these things, it's because God has changed me. But before I can get that out, Reedy's over there as they're blessing me and, oh, you're so awesome and wonderful. And she's going... <coughs> You want to know why? Because Rini saw my works when nobody was around. There were times where I'd come in in the evening and I didn't do anything to help her. I was too tired. Where she had been with the kids all day and was tired, or she had been at work and came home and was tired and made a meal, and, but I was too tired. She couldn't possibly be as tired as I am. Well, I've stayed, I raised four kids, so believe me, I understand who's really tired at the end of the day. It's my wife. See, it's just so easy, not even when we intend, but it's easy to bring glory to ourselves, being the salt and the light. Be the light. 
and give all the glory to God. And be the light when it's just you alone. Be the light when it's just your spouse, when it's just your child that's with you. Be the same. Don't change. The reason is because it's not really you doing it. The works that you're doing, God prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10 says. So those works were God's works. If God's called you to do it, God's going to give you the ability to do it. Just follow God in any setting. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So light has one purpose. And then he says, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now as we move through the Gospels, and we study the ministry of Jesus Christ over the next weeks and months, so often we're going to see a phrase or a statement that's made by the multitude in this way. As Jesus is touching and healing so many people, it said that they went away glorifying God. Oh, that God would be glorified in our works as we shine our light. Amen? So the Christian life is a life of balance. You're called to be a preserving influence in a wicked world and to be the light of the world. But do it in such a way that when they see your good works, they won't be praising and glorifying you, but they will praise and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the challenge that Christ puts before this church today. Are you the salt of the earth? Be honest. Allow the Holy Spirit to now bring up in you the things that are happening, the things that he sees. Allow him to convict you of those things. Allow him to do a work in your heart today. Surrender fresh and new to God. It doesn't mean you're getting saved again. It just means that you are taking out the trash. You're allowing Christ to have first place so that he can use you as salt and as light. Let's have a moment just of contemplation, can we? Go ahead, just lower your heads, and if you want to close your eyes, fine. The only reason I have you do that, because I just want you to focus on you. I don't want you looking around trying to observe everything. and make. Let's just, let's just have a moment with God, each of us. Allow the Spirit of God to bring to us encouragement, correction, instruction, whatever He needs to do. Father, thank you for the honor of being salt and light, that you would entrust to us 
this incredible responsibility to live Christ so that the world can bring praise and glory to the Father. That's the end result. That we would be able to share the testimony how you transformed us, lost, without hope, destined for hell. And we surrendered to you, and through the work of Christ on the cross, we were saved by grace through faith. May that message be continually on our lips. May we share it with anyone who has an ear to hear. And may we carry ourselves in the character and conduct of Christ in whatever setting we find us, even in the workplace. And if it brings persecution, so be it. But this is who we are. Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us, for saving us, for showing your mercy and kindness to us. May we walk in those things before men. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite at the close here, if you'd like to have someone pray with you about any matter that you're facing in your life right now, uh, at the elders and some of the prayer uh, ministers would come up then we'll just, just come to one of them after the service is over and feel free to, to uh, share what's going on and they'll agree with you in prayer. We just never want you to leave thinking, man, I'm all alone in what I'm going through. If you're carrying a burden that's heavy, these folks would be glad to pray with you, okay? All right, God bless you, church. Thank you for being here. Make sure you love one another before you walk out. It's got to be more than just a, a word on a page and a thought in your mind. Let it play out of your hands, out of your smile, out of your feet. Go to somebody, love them, okay? God bless you.